To put it really frankly and bluntly, my wife and I were ambushed. We were leaving our home to go to a surprise birthday party for my mother-in-law. And when the elevator doors opened in the garage of our high-rise apartment building, there were men there standing with guns aimed right at me. The day was July 22nd, 2014. Jason Razian was then serving as the Washington Post bureau chief in Tehran, the capital of Iran. When people ask me about the fear, the fear doesn't really set in in the same kind of way that you expect until a few days have gone on. Because there is this expectation in the first hours and days that someone will realize that this is all just a terrible mistake and that the the door to the cell will be unlocked and you'll walk out of it. And as the days turn into weeks, you start to lose that hope and you start to lose that grip on reality. This is Finding Humanity, and I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Through personal stories of courage and purpose, our podcast puts a human face on the most critical issues facing our world. In each episode, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action, and together, to help create a better world. Stay tuned for a special thought leadership segment with Hina Gilani at the end of this episode. The segment is brought to you through our partnership with The Elders, an independent group of global leaders brought together by Nelson Mandela. Jason was born in San Francisco in 1976. My dad came from Iran to go to college in the late 50s, and he stayed. He graduated from San Francisco State University, which is where he met my mom. Um, My mom is from Illinois, and they were part of a generation of um, mixed couples of Iranian students who married Americans who they met while they were studying. With relatives immigrating to the United States, Jason was mostly living an Iranian-American life in Northern California. In college, Jason started studying business and hated it. He switched to psychology, only to discover that the sciences weren't for him. And I realized that I love telling a story and I love to do it on paper. You know, looking back over a lifetime of education, the things that I got kind of that jolt of joy and satisfaction from were writing essays, writing short stories. And obviously I knew that there were people who did that for a living. But Jason's path to becoming a journalist took years to establish. The thing that I want to do, the niche that I can really focus on, is explaining the Iranian experience to a predominantly American audience. If I can get there to that country and spend significant periods of time there, I can write about it in a way that'll be illuminating for an average reader. And so that was the goal. It took me several years of making short trips there and writing and pitching stories to publications back here in the U.S. before I felt like I had a a large enough body of work that I could reasonably and realistically transplant myself 
to living there full time as a freelancer, which I did in 2009. When Jason finally got his job at the Washington Post, it was a culmination of what he's aspired to since his early 20s. And while Iran was a tough place to thrive, according to Jason, he still found success in his field. I was really excited in the spring and summer of 2014 that the relationship between Iran and the rest of the world, and specifically the United States, was on the verge of making some real changes. For context, the U.S. and Iran have had a troubled relationship for decades. After the end of World War II, Iran became a target of pro-Western forces, in part due to the country's vast oil reserves. In 1953, the American CIA began to draft a plan to replace the prime minister and put in place a more assertive government and shah, or king, in Iran that would be preferred by the United States and Britain. After more than 25 years of relative stability in U.S.-Iran relations under the favorable leadership of the authoritative monarchy of the Shah, the majority of Iranians were unhappy with the economic and social conditions, and dissident was often violently quashed. The Shah's reign ended in 1979 with a revolution. Subsequent U.S. administrations claimed that the new government was supporting terrorism developing nuclear weapons, and trying to derail the Middle East peace process. As a result, the U.S. imposed a series of sanctions against Iran and severed diplomatic relations in 1980. This continued until 2013 when Iran's new president, Hassan Rouhani, took office. Around this time, the U.S. initiated secret diplomatic negotiations with Iran. I was excited about that on a personal level because I wanted the ability to you know, move freely between these two countries that you know, count me as their citizen. I wanted to welcome friends from America to this place that I love so much. I wanted to, to have this opportunity to show people that this country was as vibrant and unique and worth knowing as I had been reporting for so many years. But everything changed on that day in July 2014. It was a full-on ambush. Iranian authorities arrested Razian and his wife, Yegane Salahi. They came into the elevator, took my wife and I back into our apartment, ransacked our home, seized all of our uh, identity documents, all of our electronic devices, made us relinquish our, our passwords, Jason and his wife were taken to Evan Prison blindfolded and handcuffed. Evan Prison is Iran's most notorious prison and is known for holding foreign prisoners as well as political dissidents and intellectuals. Why is this happening? Who is it that is taking us into custody? On what grounds? And what resources are available to us to defend ourselves? And, you know, it would be many weeks before I started to have a clearer picture of what was being done to me. Jason was imprisoned for a total of 544 days. Of those, he spent 49 days in solitary confinement. His wife, Yegane, was imprisoned for 72 days. During that period, we were 
interrogated relentlessly over the most minute details of our lives that were not only blown out of proportion, but they were inverted and turned sideways and twisted into really unrecognizable versions of our lives. And all of that was being done to create a narrative that the Iranian regime would then go on to use in its propaganda media networks to justify the arrest of the Washington Post bureau chief and his wife, who was then the correspondent for the Abu Dhabi newspaper. Jason was accused of being a spy for the United States government. To better understand the plight of journalists who experienced severe censorship and surveillance, we spoke to Fernaz Fasihi. Fernaz is a freelance reporter with the New York Times International Desk covering Iran. When I used to travel back and forth to Iran, I would routinely get called in for interrogation for many hours. These interrogation sessions, it was made uh, clear to me that, uh, you know, until I go through these interrogations, I can't leave the country. They had given me accreditation. I was allowed to report, but I would get a call from the intelligence ministry and I had to go in for a couple of hours. Uh, And that was always a very difficult, unsettling experience because, you know, you kind of just step into this building and don't really know if you're going to step out. Furnaz says that the trend we're seeing in terms of freedom of the press and crackdowns of journalists is not encouraging. We are seeing that governments that are um, typically not open to transparency, to accountability, crack down on journalists all over the world. Uh, China has deported American journalists, Australian journalists, and international media from both Hong Kong and mainland China for simply doing their job. In the Philippines, the journalist Maria Risa has been sentenced to prison. In Iran, Mohammad Mossad, who won the Press Freedom Award uh, for Committee to Protect Journalists this year, uh, has just been handed a four-year prison sentence, a ban from all social media platforms, and also confiscation of all his communication material. And so... We're seeing this trend, you mentioned different countries overseas, but we're also seeing in the United States. What is driving this sense of a desire of governments globally to, in essence, see journalists as the enemy? What's driving it is control, controlling the message. It is the perception that if you, whether it's the United States or Europe or the Middle East or Asia, when you say that journalists are the enemy of the people. When you say that the reports that you're seeing are fake, you're undermining the coverage. You're undermining the reporter's credibility. It makes it more challenging, I think, for reporters to overcome this, to not only work hard to bring about uh, transparency and shine light on the truth and tell the necessary stories that need to be told, uh, but also convince the public that, no, we are not your enemy, that we're really actually working hard to inform you. And our number one job is to hold elected officials accountable and uh, tell you what they're up to. Jason's arrest as a high-profile journalist is one of many incidents happening around the world. I would say restriction or intimidation of journalists is happening at multiple levels. That's David Kay. David is a law professor at the University of California at Irvine. It's happening at the level of intimidation and harassment online. It's particularly acute for women journalists. It's happening at the level of legal change. So that let's say you're reporting on the COVID pandemic. There are many governments over the last several months that have adopted rules 
around that reporting or they're applying rules against criticism of government that limit the kind of reporting journalists can do and also impose penalties on them for reporting on the pandemic. For six years, David served as the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the right of freedom of opinion and expression. From his experience, David shares a few examples of how he perceives governments silence journalists. You see in a place like Turkey, the redefinition essentially of journalism as terrorism. So if you report on the situation for the Kurds, for example, or you report on conflict between Turkey and the Kurds, you could be redefined as a terrorist and subject to to prison. And then you see countries like Iran, like Russia, and others actually going so far as to imprison journalists for the work that they do. Oftentimes they're, and of course this is true in a place like Syria, where domestic journalists, that is Syrian journalists, or Iranian journalists in Iran, or Russian journalists in Russia, have faced the most severe consequences of that. But it's also been applied to foreign journalists who may be operating in these countries David references several ongoing contentious political issues that have made reporting difficult in these regions. I wouldn't think of this as a kind of happenstance or random set of restrictions. These are always designed to intimidate journalists so as not to report, not to provide information to the public in a way that might interfere with their power and the narrative of power that they want to extend. Until recently, the United States was seen as a beacon of freedom of press. But seemingly, that has recently changed. So we're talking about also the global impact of freedom of expression. And I know you'd mentioned this idea of a Trump effect on press freedom. But can you elaborate a little bit more on why you think the Trump effect is impacting freedom of expression? President Trump, he's done a number of different things, right? And the effect of his tactics and his strategies is both felt domestically and internationally. So, you know, domestically, he criticizes independent media. He criticizes in, you know, sometimes in quite violent terms. You might remember that he retweeted an image of, it was like a boxing ring and it was, it was like his head was superimposed on somebody who is hitting somebody else and the somebody else had a CNN head or something like that, right? So this imagery of violence, of characterizing independent media as the enemy helps create an environment, which is in part in a Trump effect, an environment that makes intimidation and harassment and ultimately violence against the media in the United States more plausible. As of December 2020, the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker recorded 265 physical attacks against journalists in America since 2017. 245 of these attacks have come while covering protests. The majority of these, 146, were recorded in 2020 as journalists covered the protests following the death of George Floyd. In September 2019, Jason wrote about this growing trend to attack journalism and journalists. He wrote, Authoritarians are having a moment, no doubt, but they are clearly nervous. Today, more people than ever feel empowered to speak out, not only in spite of repressive governments, but because of them. And people are willing to fight for justice. 
For me, Jamal, and any other journalist whose work is deemed intolerable by repressive regimes. Jason is talking about Jamal Khashoggi, a colleague at the Washington Post who is an outspoken critic of Saudi Arabian leadership. In 2018, Jamal was killed and dismembered in the Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul. We wrote for the same section of the Washington Post. We both wrote about countries that we cared about deeply, whose leaderships had treated us terribly. But we both still hoped that those two countries could evolve and be better. But it was important for me in getting to know him that, that I really realized like it really doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter where you stand on one country's politics or another. But what matters is that we both agreed in principle on you know, the right of people in these countries to express themselves and the right to want better leadership and the right to work towards that. In December of 1948, the United Nations General Assembly adopted a milestone document called the Universal Declaration for Human Rights. It sets out, for the first time, fundamental human rights to be universally protected. Freedom of expression is actually defined in both the Universal Declaration and in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is, in a way that's different from the Universal Declaration, it is a binding treaty on over 170 countries. So they have obligations under it. And Article 19 of both the ICCPR and the Universal Declaration protects everyone's right to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas of all kinds, regardless of frontiers, and through any media. David adds that freedom of expression is not an abstract concept. It's my right to seek and receive information, so my right as an audience or a consumer, and also my right to impart information. And so when you put those things together, you can see that freedom of expression goes to, you know, everything that supports other human rights, our ability to advocate for other rights, our ability to gather information about the world around us, to participate in politics, to participate in science, to participate in education, you name it. Freedom of expression guarantees our ability to really develop as humans and to participate in public life. Although protected by the Universal Declaration for Human Rights, the sad reality is that journalists are attacked, imprisoned, and killed with increasing regularity. Globally, between 2015 and 2019, a total of 454 journalists were killed, and 594 were imprisoned. In many countries, press freedoms are severely repressed. The 2020 World Press Freedom Index ranks North Korea, Turkmenistan, Eritrea, China, and Djibouti as some of the worst according to the levels of freedom available for journalists. Despite the many challenges, Jason notes how freedom of expression is critical to the foundations of democracy. I caution people all the time who think that we here in the U.S. are immune to that. We're not immune to anything. Democracy is a living and breathing thing, and if you don't tend to it, it can die. 
Jason, gives us a glimpse into the uncertainty that surrounded his arrest and detention. There were negotiations going on for my release starting in the fall of 2014. I had been told several days before my release that it was happening. I had been told that at various points throughout the year and a half that I was being held. I'd also been told that I was set for execution and that I'd be in prison for 25 years or that I'd spend the rest of my life in prison or that you know, my family had been told that I died in a car accident and they believed it. Finally, on January 16th of 2016, Jason was brought to the airport. And I was told my wife wasn't going to be able to leave with me. And after a lot of jostling and back and forth and a very long, cold night, she and I were reunited at the airport. And uh, along with the other Americans, we got on a plane. When they were told that they had left Iranian airspace and that it was no longer officially Iran, Jason was both incredibly relieved and sad. Although I'm an optimistic person and believe that I'll return to Iran someday, I can't envision what the circumstances of that will be because in the current construct of the Iranian system and their relations with the United States of America, it would be impossible for me to go there. Can you speak of the role that political prisoners play in political negotiations? Look, I mean, I think that the idea that big negotiations like the deal over Iran's nuclear program should be conditioned on the freedom of political prisoners, right? I mean, I I believe that's true. But that being said, now that we know everything that went on, it was a condition of that deal being implemented. It just wasn't a condition that was being talked about publicly. In cases like Jason's and many others, there appears to be widespread impunity for attacks on journalists. There are tools that the international community, that the UN has. And, you know, for many years, different parts of the UN, UNESCO, OHCHR, and others have talked about the importance of holding those who attack journalists accountable for those attacks. Focusing on impunity and accountability for attacks on journalists should be among the highest priorities of the UN system to demonstrate that, you know, you can't just attack journalists, whether it's through laws or it's through physical, actual attacks on them directly. And unfortunately, the UN has not been able to move the needle all that much in that particular space. Jason believes that places where free press is able to flourish and where people are able to report freely are generally happier societies. So it really falls on normal people to fight and to stand up for and continue to stand up for what is a very basic principle, but a very important one. And you can look at surveys about the trust that people have in the media or lack of trust they have in the media. And that's all well and good. But I think that the more important question of the right to expression and the need to be open to different points of view and allowing people who don't agree with you to express those points of view is central to our notions of freedom as people. And people in Syria, people in Iran, increasingly people in Turkey and Egypt, people in Central Asia, people in Mexico are finding out more and more 
that those rights are not guaranteed to everybody. And I think that, unfortunately, there are a lot of people in power around the world who don't like the idea that corruption would be exposed or that other inequities would come to the fore. I asked David how an average person can advocate for freedom of expression or help preserve it when it's been assaulted. Stepping back, sometimes, you know, we look at these issues and think they're such big issues and they're such like big geopolitical ones. It's very hard for us to imagine how we as individuals can do something about them. But actually there is something and there are things that we can do. You know, if you can't afford it, you should subscribe to independent media, independent newspaper. If you are on social media, you should be careful about what you share. You know, before you hit retweet or before you post something or something like that, make sure that you know where that's coming from and that you've read before you've shared. You know, we can also, as individuals, educate ourselves about what's happening around the world educate ourselves about what's happening in our own domestic environments and include as an element of why we might support particular policies or as we're deciding who we support for president or Senate or Congress. Today, Jason continues to write about his trauma and bring the suppression of free press to the fore. There are thousands of issues in the world that one can be concerned about. Climate change, poverty, racial injustices. These are all things that are very important and they, they affect everyone. But when there are issues that you know intimately well, and for me that means being a hostage and used as political leverage, and also being a journalist who was silenced, because I know those two experiences with such intimacy and you know, the experiential memories are visceral, they're tangible. It would be, I think, a great sin if I didn't advocate for people who faced similar plights. heard from Jason and our experts, freedom of expression plays a critical role in creating a healthier society. In this special segment, I spoke with Hina Jilani, a member of the Elders, to provide more context. Hina is a pioneering lawyer, a leading activist in Pakistan's women's movement, and an international champion for human rights. A healthy society needs the freedom of expression. To be able to convey their point of view, it can be point of view on a political situation, on a particular issue, or generally in the ability of the citizens to conduct their affairs in a manner in which their rights are protected, in a manner in which their dignity is protected, and in a manner in which they have the surety that the state responds to what the citizens are feeling and conveying to the state from time to time. There are several instances that we see from different countries where 
the poor and the marginalized have in fact used the freedom of assembly and the right to protest to put forward their demands from their state and the authorities where you have seen this in brazil in the peasants movement the movement of the landless people you've seen it in thailand with the movement for the poor so these are some of the things that have allowed people to participate without having to create their dependency either on organized ngos to take forward their word so i believe that the best way of people to be able to not only conduct their affairs independent of any other agency it is also important that the state and the agencies of the state are able to hear directly the message from those that are affected so what can be done to safeguard the rights of people to protest and to advocate for change where it is being silenced as you're mentioning i think it is important for people to know their rights so that governments cannot unfairly restrict them as a general rule the right to protest should not be limited in any way however the exercise of the right to protest may have an effect on the exercise of the rights of other people who are not involved in a protest such as the right to freedom of movement and therefore there is the scope within international law and national constitutional fundamental rights that have been guaranteed there is that scope for reasonable restrictions to be placed on the freedom of assembly but any restrictions on this right must be lawful they must be necessary they must be proportional and they must be applied without discrimination where a limitation has been imposed protesters have the right to judicial and administrative review and some kind of remedy for any violations that have occurred during their practicing or realization of the right to freedom of assembly and of expression Hina talks about the use of force and how governments have used it to silence dissenters and repress the rights of people to peacefully assemble I think it's also important to realize that if force is used it has to be guided by the principle of illegality and by the international standards that have been laid down for the use of force and these are very clear standards there can be no ambiguity about it and the states cannot use any justification to say that excessive force is not defined and therefore the measure of force that they have applied was at their discretion this cannot be a means of justification for application of force and i have seen peaceful assemblies turn into a riot because of the response by the law enforcement agencies so where the intention is to hold a peaceful assembly that intention in some ways is countered by the reaction of the law enforcement agencies who are neither properly trained nor are properly guided by the international standards of crowd control of how proportionality and necessity has to be an essential ingredient of any decision to use force and i do believe that some governments more recently have used this covid-19 as a smoke screen to silent dissent on the one hand and on the other to use repressive means to impose restrictions on people who are protesting especially in my part of the world the protests during the covid period have been on the deprivation of social and economic rights at the moment they have used for instance the sops for covid-19 as an excuse to use force 
against people during these protests. These are some of the things that show how sensitive or how insensitive a government is with regard to its own obligations and the rights of its citizens. As Hannah notes, we must continue to safeguard the human rights of people to speak out and hold our governments, institutions, and societies accountable. We'll be hearing again from Hina in an upcoming episode on nonviolent resistance and accountability for the violation of citizens' rights to protest. Journalistic freedom and freedom of speech is central to a healthy democracy. In an era of fake news, misinformation, and disinformation, it is critical to safeguard journalism and freedom of expression. We hope that this episode gave you insight into the risk that journalists take to uncover stories that matter, to share diverse public opinions, and to challenge politics and power. At a time when so many people rely on social media and quick videos for news, we must support independent journalism. Through our podcast, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action around global issues, and we would love to invite you to join our global movement. There are many ways to take action. Here are just a few suggestions. Please subscribe to a smaller independent journalism outlet and support their work. Speak out in support of freedom of expression and pressure your government to do more to protect the rights of journalists and independent media outlets. And lastly, contribute your time and skills to help encourage and nurture the love of journalism in young and emerging talent. You have the power to inspire real change. To learn more about this episode, check out the links to resources on our show notes and on our website, findinghumanitypodcast.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you've enjoyed Finding Humanity, please share it and leave us a review. To learn more about topics in our podcast and other opportunities to engage with us, Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at find underscore humanity and on Facebook at Finding Humanity Podcast. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of the producers or any affiliated organizations. Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. This season is made possible in part by our collaborating partner, The Elders. While this series is produced in collaboration with our partner, The Elders did not exercise any editorial discretion on this episode. Our executive producer is Camille Lorente. Associate producer is Fernanda Oriegas. Assistant producer is Diana Galbraith. Associate Production, Policy and Research by Martina Vanat, Aisha Amin, and Carolina Mendica. Mixing, Editing, and Music by Maverick Aquino. For this episode, I'd like to thank our experts, David Kane, Fernaz Fasihi, and Hina Jelani. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.